Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Freedom from the Struggle podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Corelli. Tonight, we're on episode eight of season one, and it is entitled Counterfeit Love and Acceptance. If you're new on this journey, season one is a nine episode season designed to lay the foundation for our understanding of spiritual warfare and demonic attack, and how deliverance ministry and pointing people to the love of Jesus Christ is where they will find their hope in their times of struggle. So as we get towards the end of season one, you'll notice that we're in depth in terms of understanding some of these difficult, if not taboo, subjects in the world today. And I'm not afraid to shy away from them because they are 100% relevant to understanding evil and how it works in our world today and yesterday. You know, one famous pastor always says, the Bible doesn't just tell us what's going to happen. The Bible tells us what always happens. And so evil exists today, but it, it has existed since the beginning of human history. And so if we can understand a little bit of the past and a little bit of the present, it gives us an idea of what we're dealing with on an individual basis. Tonight's episode, I want to start out with a couple of testimonies. And these are testimonies of people that I will uh, allow to remain anonymous, but these are people that I've spoken to very recently in terms of their experience with the demonic and how they found relief in Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear stories of demonic attack. It doesn't always look like the movies. As a matter of fact, most of the time, it's very subtle, at least in the beginnings, because demons like to hide. They don't like to be out in the front because when they're exposed, then the sufferer, as well as the love, the people who are around them, who love that person who is suffering, they can formulate a plan on how to resolve the situation. So demons like to hide back in the shadows and tear somebody apart in a much more subtle way. That doesn't always work that way. And definitely as demonic attachments uh, get a deeper and deeper grip, then you may see some of the quote unquote Hollywood uh, movie type uh, demonic interactions. But for the most part, people who deal with the demonic don't realize how insidious and how methodical the infiltration was. And so I want to start out the episode with a couple of testimonies, and I'm going to just start out with a young lady who I met when she was approximately 22 years old, um, living on her own, kind of wrapping up her bachelor's degree in college, and somebody who came from a very, I would say, non-religious, non-believing family. This young lady I met when she had decided that she would start attending a church that I had actually uh, spoke at as a guest. And so I met her through a group of people that went to dinner after we, after we did a sermon and spoke to some of the people at the church. There was a large group of us, maybe 30 people that went to a dinner that was hosted at um, the senior pastor's home. 
And so it was kind of more of a dinner party, I guess you would say, than a dinner. But we did sit and eat together. And this young lady began to challenge me a little bit in regards to my sermon. Now, for those of you who have been preachers or those of you who have been in church, you will often find that, you know, a, a preacher can preach a sermon. And I would say the vast majority of people will resonate with the sermon. Undoubtedly, every time, at least 99% of the time, there will be one or two or sometimes a few more people that have, I guess for better terms, a beef with something that the pastor said, something that the preacher said. And so in this particular instance, I had spoken to uh, the group about judgment and how the Bible says that you know, do not judge lest you be judged for the measure that you use is the measure that will be used towards you. And I stated in the sermon that sometimes it takes somebody who's been there to be somebody who can help others. And I use the example of an alcoholic and Alcoholics Anonymous. And I stated that in Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of times you don't really have credibility as a helper, maybe a sponsor, or even just a person speaking into another person's life unless you've been there. So I, I think I used the phrase something to the effect of it takes an alcoholic to help a, an alcoholic, and therefore it takes a sinner to help a sinner. And I said that. With the purpose of communicating to the church that speaking from a position of authority or a position of a higher status towards somebody who's struggling in sin often brings more of a contempt towards Jesus and towards the church than people realize. And what I was communicating was if you can go to a church where people are open that they haven't arrived, you might get more of a response or a, an acceptance of the message if you come across as, I've struggled too, or I've been there too, I'm still working too, God's still working on me as well type of mentality instead of, we here at this church have figured it out, so if you've wandered in the door, you need to get where we are. I don't know about you, uh, whoever you are as a listener, but that always drove me crazy as a new believer, as somebody experimenting or visiting churches in my younger days when I became a Christian. I hated that. I don't like people being better than me, and I don't really know who does, but for some reason that's become acceptable in the church. You know, one of the pastors I've listened to that I listen to frequently is a man named Tullian Chavidian, and I would encourage you to find some of his sermons on the internet. He uh, pastors a church in Jupiter, Florida called, the, Florida called The Sanctuary, and Tullian is the grandson of Billy Graham, but Tullian's had a kind of up and down life. He was a rebel 
in his younger days and then found Jesus and became a pastor of a very prominent church in the United States, but had a, 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 a sin that caused him to what Christians would call fall from grace. But he, I like how he words it. He says he fell into grace because he realized that he needed God more than ever. And so he was, you know, fired, shunned by the Christian community, which I can't stand, but it happened. And so has since, I would say, found his, himself in recovery in terms of, you know, working on himself and self-professed um, person who has found a new outlook on life in terms of how he helps people. And so if you listen to his sermons, he's very much a guy that is very transparent about his sin and about how he struggles. And he's building a big following again because of that mentality. So I've always believed in that because I am somebody who has fallen from grace um, as a minister. And I am somebody who understands that the church, and this is Tullian's words here, the church is very good at helping the victims of sin but they are not very good at helping the perpetrators of sin. And this was the point of my message back in the day when I met this young lady. And that if we would all get on an even playing field, that I may be a little farther along than I was six months ago, but I have not arrived. And more importantly, if the church, as, as we were taught in scripture, if you can confess your sins to one another, you might have a better church community. But of course, we read those words on a page in a Bible, but the instinctual reaction you will have to that is there is no way I am telling these complete strangers at this church my dirty, lowest, darkest secrets because I'll be judged, ridiculed, ostracized, and maybe worse. So if the church could communicate to its followers through a mentality of we're all in this together, we might have a, I would say, a remedy for demonic attack. Now, when I preached this sermon, I, I had a very good response. This was a church of maybe 300 people maybe 350 in attendance, not really sure. I don't really remember, to be honest. But this young lady who sat close to me at the dinner table, basically in the midst of a, of a kind of a jovial time, interrupted the conversation and said, so I have a question for you. And I said, sure, go for it. But in my heart, I knew it was one of those moments. You know, when you can feel the air change, you feel the atmosphere change. But I, I can honestly tell you that I wasn't prepared for what I was dealing with in terms of a demonic spirit. I was simply prepared for a disgruntled, um, maybe new believer or non-believer to criticize something I said. And so I was more worried about keeping the awkwardness to a low level. This young lady said, so do you truly believe that when somebody sins, they should be accepted? And you can imagine uh, forks clanking against plates, 
conversations going on around the table and around a junctive table because there was a lot of people. So they were sitting in different places, people sitting on an island, people standing up with plates in their hand. The room became silent. And I said, well, I'm not sure the point of your question, but I can answer it this way. Do I believe that sin should be accepted? No. Do I believe people who sin should be accepted? Yes. And you can imagine, even as some of you are listening now, that creates some unease or some tension in your spirit because maybe your, your first thought was, what's the difference? But I'm going to challenge you a little bit, and you might think I'm going down a path away from what my topic of this podcast is, but I can assure you I'm truly not. The people in the room were on edge for her next response. And she said, you sound like you are accepting of sin. Is that because you live in sin? Now, again, I want you to think of the complexity of this answer. Because a minister or a preacher who has been paid to fly across the country to speak at a church that you've never been to with literal complete strangers the truth of that answer is very uncomfortable but i'm not somebody who shies away from this so i said absolutely i am a sinner but i'm saved by grace and any preacher or any church leader that tells you they are without sin you should run from them so if you're asking if I'm somebody who lives in sin, yes, I'm working on it. The Holy Spirit is chiseling away at some deep-rooted stuff in me. But what I do have is an understanding of the grace of Jesus Christ that has saved me, although I don't deserve it. None of us deserves it. So, by understanding that, I don't have a license to sin, and Paul addressed this in, in his books, but what I do have is an understanding that this God forgives me of these sins that I've perpetrated and the people that I've wounded and that guilt and shame, I don't have to live with it. And when I understand that grace at any depth, I don't want to sin because I'm so grateful of what I've been forgiven for. But I will never be somebody who says, I don't sin. And I will also never be somebody that says sin is no big deal. And so my answer seemed to resonate with probably 95% of the people in the room. And the conversation kind of shifted. And, and if my memory serves me correctly, the host of the party, uh, the senior pastor's wife, she kind of changed the subject a little bit, but I knew that the conversation wasn't over. And so I, you know, uh, excused myself from the table and maybe about 30 minutes later, I was out on the deck and they had this enormous deck 
and it was probably 20 feet off the ground. You had to go down these exorbitant amount of steps to get to the backyard because it was a walkout basement and kind of on a cliff on a hillside. And I was standing on the deck, just kind of looking out. It was kind of a wooded area a little bit. And this young lady came out and she had uh, the senior pastor and an associate pastor with her. And the pastor said, she's still kind of stewing on this. Um, pastor Corelli, would you be willing to continue this conversation? And I said, sure, but let's bring a couple of church leaders out here and let's just kind of pull some chairs up and talk. And when I asked her, I said, can I ask you where you're at in your faith journey? Because it seems to me like this is an important topic. And so it's indicative of wrestling with inside yourself. Because if you simply think I'm a quack, you would have just laughed at me and moved on. And if you think that I'm completely right, it wouldn't be this big of a deal. So this is indicative of some sort of internal turmoil. So let me just ask that. And what I what I found in the midst of that question was my spirit kind of shuddered. And when I looked into her eyes, that's when it became clear to me. Oh, she has a demon. Be before she answered, I would have bet a thousand dollars this was true. But once she answered, everybody on that deck knew what was going on because she began to speak to me. And I, I wouldn't say it was in a low demonic Hollywood voice. It was more in a voice that was different than hers, more gruff and authoritative. And she said, you are a hypocrite. You are full of sin and you try to minimize your sin and you try to accept the sins of others. So you can avoid being perfect. Like your God tells you to be perfect. And it wasn't just her voice, but it was the term your God. And there's a subtle little thing there that I don't want you to miss before I move on with this testimony. When you hear somebody say your God with any sort of indignation in their voice, I would bank on the fact that you're talking to a demon. Because, you know, if I'm talking to somebody who maybe is of the Muslim faith, I may say something like, well, your scriptures would say that Allah says this, but our Bible says this. I wouldn't say your God says this because it would be confrontational. It would be adversarial. So when she said this, I said to myself, okay, now you know what you're dealing with. So I said, before we move on with this question, can I pray for you? And she said that she didn't need that. But I said, well, can I pray for us? And there was no response. So as I began to pray, she began to become, I would say, shifty in her chair. And then she said to me, you're all hypocrites. 
And I said, is the voice in your head right now? And I won't say her name. Is the voice in your head right now telling you we're all hypocrites or do you know we're all hypocrites? And she said, I know. And I said, okay, demon, you are not allowed to be here. In the name of Jesus Christ, flee from this woman. Flee from us. And in a very quick fashion, the woman kind of, I would say, came to, came back to her reality. And she said, why was I saying that? And I told her, are you willing to entertain the fact that you have a demon attached to you, in you, something to that effect? And she said, well, I wouldn't shy away from it because I keep finding myself with more and more lost time. And I keep finding from my friends that I'm becoming more and more aggressive and mean. I said, when did it happen? And she said to me, I was dating a Christian man. And he and I hit it off really well. And we dated for about six months. And he asked me, would you be willing to become a Christian? Because I believe that we have to be equally yoked in order to be in a long-term relationship and maybe eventually marriage. And she said, well, I don't believe in all of that. And he, I guess, after a couple of days, thought, prayed about it, not sure, but he came back to her and said, well, I would like to break up with you because I'm at that place in our relationship where I can't go any farther because my faith is important to me. And if you're a Christian listening to this podcast, you probably understand that. But if, if you're a non-believer, or if you could put yourself in the shoes of a non-believer, that sounds pretty elitist. It sounds pretty above. Now, here's the crazy part. I don't believe he did anything wrong. You could argue that he shouldn't have dated her in the first place, and I'll give you that. But you don't know where he was in his journey. Maybe when he started dating her, he wasn't as deep into his faith and his understanding of how God wants him to live his life. But as he was progressing with God, maybe he was progressing with her, and it came to that proverbial stalemate. Now, I don't know, but I also try to not assume the worst of people. And so, because I don't know, I can put myself in the shoes of both her and him. Well, she took it to heart. And so she began to build an animosity towards Christians. And she became a believer that all Christians are hypocrites. But because she was so heartbroken, she had found herself trying out Christian churches not with the purposes or purpose of meeting Jesus, but with the purpose of understanding all of us hypocrites. Now, let me be honest with you. She had tried out 
a few churches, I would say maybe a little less than a handful, and had found tons of quote-unquote hypocrisy within these churches, including asking for exorbitant amounts of money, um, you know, Christian men with their wives staring at her, you know, lustfully, that type of thing. Because if you're looking for it, it will be there because we're flawed creatures. And you've heard me say it a thousand times by now. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you're somebody who is anti-God or anti-Christianity, you have a very good group of test subjects to prove your point or your hypothesis because you follow a Christian around long enough, they're not acting like a Christian. You know what I'm saying? Now, that is a very, very huge tool of the devil and his demons. There's no better way than to get your point across than to say, well, Christianity sounds great, but look at these people. They don't follow it. And I want you to consider that the demon's animosity towards you is probably very intricate and multifaceted. But one of the things they hate about you is that they're, you're forgiven. There's an opportunity for your forgiveness, for your salvation, and not for theirs. So they hate you for that. And more importantly, the devil's job at heaven's court, as we read in Job, is to bring a case against you. Remember, Asatan, Satan, is actually defined as the word adversary. He's your adversary. He attends heaven court, heaven's court and says, Anthony is a clown. He is full of sin. He does this sin and that sin and this sin and that sin. And that was by before noon. God, how could you love this guy and allow him into your paradise, into your kingdom? And as a Christian, you come to understand that as the adversary is accusing you, you're, and I hate to minimize this, but it's the best term that I could think of. It's, it just makes it sound cheap, but it's true. Your defense attorney named Jesus stands up and says, I have paid the price for that sin in advance. So yes, he's guilty, but the penalty's already been paid. He has served his time by accepting me as his alternative to facing his own demise. So when you think about how offensive that is to somebody on the sidelines, you start to understand how the devil can weave himself and the demons could weave themselves into somebody's mind. This Christian thinks he's better. This Christian thinks she's perfect. This Christian thinks that she is living a better life than me. But behind closed doors, I know X, Y, and Z secrets about her. Here's the deal. When you're understanding how somebody finds themselves in need of deliverance ministry, they have been broken down 
worn down by an enemy who is so intelligent and so full of hate and in most cases unbelievably patient to create a understanding in you that you're not perfect and how could God love you? I don't know of one person who I have ever helped in deliverance ministry that didn't have that as a root of the demonic attachment that they've incurred. I don't know of one. Now there's other factors and those are more of a case by case, but it all starts with the enemy being able to say, God doesn't love you. And so this woman's testimony, of course, these were some great people that I was sitting on the deck with, and we prayed a prayer of deliverance for her. And she accepted Jesus that very night. And her life is completely turned around. And her testimony lies in the fact that she can tell her story of how a, an emotional wound led her to listen to the voices in her head and told her to hate Christians and to not believe that Christianity was the way because it's hypocritical in its nature. And we know it's not, but that was the lie that the enemy wove into her mind. Another quicker testimony here is a, a person that I met once upon a time, and he was in a similar situation than the first story I told you. He was, however, somebody who believed that there was a God, but he was an intellectual. And so he had taken it upon himself to study world religions. And so he was one of those guys when he challenged you as a pastor or a Christian, he would very intellectually pick apart your Bible, the Quran, the writings of Buddha, you know, any te texts or, or um, sacred documents he had, quote unquote, studied more than most. And so he had come to believe that, you know, God was this God that had represented himself to all of these different groups of people on the earth. And that's just they, their belief system was woven from how they saw him or how they perceived God in their current situation. So if you, if you can put it more succinctly, he believed that all roads go to heaven, but he found himself interested in some pagan religions and got involved with a group of people that were quote unquote teaching him about some of the pagan religions. And I, I'm not sure if you've ever worked with a lot of pagans or if you've interacted with people that would consider themselves pagan or Wicca or even white witches, but they, they're very educated in what they believe are the misrepresentations of history that will tell you that the pentagram was once upon a time used by the Christians or by the, the followers of, of God and Jesus, but then now they're this and, you know, they'll, they'll take you down a path, but 
their religion is based on more of understanding nature or self, more of a self-serving, self-guided lifestyle, which is very, I hate to say it, but it's a more selfish way to look at the world. And so they become mockers of Christianity, which is sometimes considered weak because we're turning our will over to a, a, a God bigger than us. So he was definitely one of those people. And through some interactions with these pagans, he found himself very, very demonized, very much under the influence of demons. He had lost weight. He had been fired from his job. He was very, very, very close to a divorce. His kids wanted nothing to do with him. He became physically and emotionally abusive towards his family, which from what I understand was very uncharacteristic. When we played, when we prayed deliverance over him and he was able to break those bonds and, and find Jesus, he became a pretty devout Christian. And more importantly, he became somebody who last I heard was teaching some kind of adult educational classes at his church in regards to the Bible and, and who Jesus is, that type of thing. So he still used his giftedness and his intellect, but now it was for God. But back to the testimony, when I spoke with him, you know, in subsequent meetings, he was able to say that he never saw God as the loving God that Christians represented him to be. He saw God as a God that was sort of wishy-washy. Because you can read in the Bible where he's sending Joshua to kill entire civilizations of people, can called it genocide. He was able to say, and at other times, this God seems very loving and compassionate, but that doesn't seem like a God who has his mind made up. It seems like a God that's very flawed. And so this put him on his journey. But if you can listen to his words, you can hear, in my opinion, you can hear the words of a demon telling him who he should believe God is. God has been the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. We change. We can be a person who sees an injustice in our family and say, this man hurt my child. I want this man to go through the judicial system and suffer the most severe penalty that can be dished out. And even then, that's not good enough. That's justice. I want more than justice. I want this person to receive the death penalty or life in prison without parole. But we can't understand that God sent Joshua to wipe out civilizations that were so corrupt and so evil and so abusive and murderous and sacrificial in ways that we cannot understand. God didn't send Joshua into civilizations where a lot of the people have it figured out, but some of them didn't. I'm going to point you to a story from the Old Testament where Abraham is having a conversation with a spiritual being and his nephew Lot is trapped in this city and an angel had come to Lot 
and the people of the city, angels actually, and the people of the city were trying to get Lot to let these angels out into the town square to be raped. Imagine a situation where in your neighborhood, it was common practice that if you had a guest visit you, that you had to push them out the door and let them get assaulted. Can you imagine living in that neighborhood? Can you imagine having your children live there? Can you imagine the depravity? No police, nobody trying to stop it. I would say the town leaders were the ones provoking Lot to let these visitors out. So as Abraham has this conversation, you can see that he is trying to save a city by saying, what if you found like 50 people that are good there? I won't destroy it. And he whittles this number down to where it's almost nobody. If just a handful of people or so are good, would you not destroy it? Yeah, but there's not that many people that aren't completely depraved. So we hear that Lot leaves, and this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where a catastrophe wipes out the entire, I would say, countryside, the entire small cities, civilizations of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we even hear that Lot's wife, who was told not to turn around, turned around and was made into a pillar of salt because the devastation was so severe. Lot's wife turning around means that there was part of her that was enmeshed in that culture. Now, we don't know to what extent, maybe in her heart or maybe literal, but can you hear that this spiritual being is having a conversation with Abraham and they are conversing about what it would take for God to wipe out a group of people. These weren't innocent people. But this man in this testimony, he didn't understand that. He understood that once upon a time, God wiped out these civilizations through in his mind, whatever any means necessary. But that's not the case. And so as he became a believer, his instincts, as a matter of fact, his words to me were, I was lied to. And I said, by who? And that's when it really dawned on him. He had been having conversations in his head inside of himself. Imagine the subtlety of a demon that is able to converse with you inside of yourself and you don't even realize that it's happening. You know, we always hear jokes about, you know, it's okay if you talk to yourself as long as you don't answer, you know, because if you were walking down the street before there was earbuds and you saw somebody talking to themselves, you would say that person is crazy, right? So you know that somebody talking to themselves is not normal, 
yet he had not even realized until after his deliverance that he had participated in full-fledged conversations with an entity inside of himself. Think about that for a minute. Now, this is important in our deliverance ministry education for this reason. If we are trying to deliver somebody from a demon or a group of demons, we have to help them break through the lies. And of course, first commanding the demon to stop the infiltration, commanding the demon to stop the aggressive physical attack of the body as you're praying for somebody, that's important. But once that is ceased, this person has to give their life to Jesus. They have to understand the enemy that they're fighting, the enemy that is competing for their soul and for their body. And as you're having these conversations with these people who are suffering, the reason I named my book series The Struggle is because I don't know of a better word. It is a struggle. It is not a one-time event. It is a consistent perpetual struggle for your soul. And so there is in this man's life, a moment in an, in a phone conversation with me where he says, I didn't realize I was having this conversation. And just like with anybody else, you have to get them to understand that they've been lied to. So the enemy, when he comes back to try to see if he still got a home within this person, that he doesn't because it's now filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with a believer who is on the path to learn more and more and more about Jesus. I have a passage tattooed on my arm, 2 Corinthians 5.17, because it's an important passage to me, because I am not somebody who comes from spiritual royalty. I come from a, a family that I would say you're born Catholic, not necessarily raised Catholic, and definitely not welcome to believe Catholic. You're just told that's what you are. And so I had a, a, an understanding of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but in that particular faith, or at least where I attended, I wasn't encouraged to learn any more than what I was told. So I became a Christian at 16, but again, I had a lot of trouble with the religious people in the denomination that I studied in. So I didn't have the ability to maybe express my concerns or ask my questions because it was a very religious type approach to how you responded to your congregation. And I hated that. And it took me many years of trial and error, many years of what people would call backsliding and moving back to God basically God trying to pull me forward when I was trying to pull myself backwards, that I understood the concept of being a new creation. And so I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19, the English Standard Version, and I want you to hear this in the context of what I was saying. It says, therefore, if any is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold." the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ God, 
was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For somebody who comes from where I've come from and has done the things I've done and has lived with the shame of the sins that I've committed, I needed to know that in Christ I'm a new creation. Now, this is where the religious people who I believe are demonically influenced in those moments will start to fight with you about what that means. I'm a new creation the moment that I accept Christ into my life. It says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, as a, as a believer in Christ, I instantly become a new creation, but I'm still stuck in this old body and I still have this soul that is tainted with my sins and the, the attachments of demons and philosophies that have Im- embedded themselves in my mind and my flesh wanting to do fleshly things. And so therein lies the struggle. So you can see whether you're an unbeliever, like the testimonies that I spoke of earlier, or you're a believer, the enemy is constantly trying to get you to believe that you're not forgivable, that you're unlovable, that you're not good enough, or you're not perfect enough, or that God doesn't love you enough to forgive you, or God doesn't love you enough to give you what you need and even what you want. And so you will try to seek out what you need or what you want in other sources because I believe the devil and his demons will bastardize the scriptures and lie to you within yourself to get you to believe that God isn't the answer. But he is. I, I, I'm going to take this time to kind of address some, some things that I find humorous. And this is just something, you know, I was, I was going through some of my social media. It's a new podcast. So I put out some ads on social media and, and, you know, you'll get, you'll get people that get these ads that of course probably didn't want them. I don't select who Facebook or Instagram sends these things to. As to be honest with you, I don't even send the ads. My team does that. I just write the content and then they, they post it. So I'm not purposely seeking out who these ads are going to. There are people that might be interested in some of my works of my books or just has interest in podcasts or authors. Uh, however, the social media um, agencies or the social media companies choose to send these ads to, I don't know, but you'll undoubtedly get people who start sending back, you know, I guess their attempts to, I don't know, uh, derogatorily attack me for my content. But I chuckle because why is your soul so un, at, at, so at unrest that somebody sends you an invitation to listen to a podcast about spiritual warfare and demons Do you feel to angrily and aggressively attack the person who sent that? And more importantly, I'm a big boy. I could care less. But some of the people who chose to, um, you know, support the podcast or at least support the, the ad 
then get attacked by these people. I want you to think about this. There is no bigger indicator of demonic influence or demonic attack than attacks on the truth. Let me say that again. There's no bigger indicator of a demonic presence than attacks on the truth. You see, by me saying in tonight's episode, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare and how demons lie to you. If I'm demonized and I hear that, the demon in me doesn't like it. So you send a meme about there's nothing worse than having an imaginary friend or an imaginary enemy except for having an imaginary friend or whatever it said. And as, as a person, just as a human being, I kind of chuckle. The meme's kind of funny. It's kind of a, you know, a, a subtle jab, you know, with a little hint of humor to it. But the, the spirit in me is sad because I don't find people who profess themselves to be atheists and seek out their content and send them memes about how ludicrous their beliefs are. Because I personally don't feel that way. I personally feel like I hope I can be somebody that you see as a real person who has chosen to live my life for God. Because I lived my life for everything other than God, and I've lived my life for God, and I'll choose this every time. I live my life for the world. I didn't get anything out of that. I live my life for God. I'm fulfilled. I live in peace. My life is completely better, blessed beyond measure. So even if you take the religiosity out of it, I choose to live this way. And I'm hoping you, you understand that who I am as a person isn't about condemning you. It's about giving you the truth. And more importantly, if you find yourself in struggle with a demon, the truth is, is that your only remedy for long-term peace is Jesus Christ. And long-term peace doesn't mean life without demonic attack. It just means freedom from the bonds that the demons have wrapped around you and future understanding and blessings when those demons try to reattach. And then when you get to heaven, then your true freedom is fulfilled. That's what I'm trying to accomplish. Because I don't know how much you really understand Christianity if you're an atheist or an attacker of Christianity or you don't believe demons exist or whatever your thought processes are. Because if you read farther in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Therein lies the 100% purpose of a demon to convince you that if you accept Jesus, that it's a mistake, that God made a mistake. But scriptures clearly say that because Jesus 
came to earth and became sin for me because he went without sin. I become the righteousness of God. Watch this. Why is Christianity important? Why is it the one that I chose? Why is it the way, the truth, and the life is through Jesus? Why? Because God cannot accept anything in his paradise except perfection. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I've never met anybody perfect. I've never met anybody who even comes close because even the people that think they do, their sin of self-righteousness is sometimes grosser than some of the other things I see. So how could we ever get to heaven being so imperfect when God only accepts perfection? Well, the answer to that is he accepts Jesus, who is perfection. And so I don't get to heaven because I walk in with my own cloak of righteousness, kick the door down and say, you know, I belong here, St. Peter. I humbly approach that gate, whether St. Peter's there or not. I don't know. That's just a myth, I guess. But when I approach that gate and I see God himself, my humble, broken heart who knows I don't belong there isn't even want to going to make eye contact with him. But when he says you're in because all I see is the righteousness of my son in your place, see, that makes sense to me. And, and I mean to pick on nobody, but let's take our Muslim brothers. They even understand this to some extent. This is why they pray five times a day religiously towards Mecca because they understand I can pray in an X amount of time later. I need to pray again. I have already done so much in between the last prayer session that I need to do this again if I'm ever going to get to paradise. You see what I'm, what I'm getting at? Like we become the righteousness of God. Some of you, as I say that you hate it, it doesn't make sense. It feels, it feels uncomfortable because I'm not perfect. You know, God's perfect. I'm not. I can't be righteous. I can't be the righteousness of God. Yes, you can. Not by what you did, but by what he did. And this is what I want you to understand. This is what the demons will do to get you. Let me make this simple. How does a deliverance minister cast out a demon? Is it our superior training? Did we go to some secret ceremony where we learned some magical chants that have been passed down through the ages and civilizations lost in Atlantis and found by one group of people that brings us into the magic? No. Deliverance ministers just understand that the battle is not fought with, with us. The battle is fought between Jesus and his enemy. The Bible says that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. This battle has already been won. So helping somebody who's in the throes of a demonic possession, a demonic attack, demonized, whatever term you want to use, it's about getting the demon to surrender to the name of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed on the cross. Once that demon has been paralyzed, and shut up, 
then that person can choose the one true God who has already won the battle. I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, but I know somebody who's not a Christian and they helped somebody who had a demon with this ritual and this ceremony. Okay, well, in my ignorance, I don't know what the ceremony is, but I can tell you right now that that demon may have left for some reason, maybe some mystical reason that I don't know, but that demon and other demons will come back. Your hope lies in the enemy of those demons. Demons can't be in an all-out war with other demons. That's the house divided against itself. We learned that in a previous podcast. Who's the enemy of these demons? Look around. Who does the world hate? Who does the world mock and ridicule? Think about that for a minute. Now, for a demon to really, really sink its claws into you, it has to understand what's specific to you what situation specific to you it can use to create doubt in God. Because God is protecting you whether you're a believer or not. But by giving these demons permissions, a series of permissions, you remove the blessings that that God's giving you, even if you're a non-believer. You're removing his protections. And so eventually, God will let you turn yourself over to the enemy, hoping that it's the way that you will come back. So let's take some of these scenarios that a demon may use for you specifically, or maybe a demon has used, and you're listening to this podcast right now saying, that's happened to me, and I may have a demon and don't realize it, or I may have a demon that isn't progressed, but it's progressing, and I want to reach out for help. So I'm going to give you some examples of what you should look for. Example number one. Did you come from an abusive home? And maybe this is a home that was religiously abusive. Maybe it was physically abusive. Maybe there was a lot of hopelessness, substance abuse, what I would call unpredictability. You know, one of those homes that's so full of chaos that you don't know when dad's going to come home or what mood he's going to come in. You don't know if mom's going to be in a good mood or so depressed that she can't even come out of her room and take care of you. If you come from a home like that and somebody asks you to trust God, who's God? I'm going to challenge you here a little bit, especially with something that people, most people don't realize. If you take a group of people that consider themselves atheists, you would be shocked at how many people who consider themselves atheists have issues with their father. The number is not minuscule. The number is so high that you have to believe that it is a factor in somebody choosing to be a non-believer in a godhead or a god. Well, that would make sense if you have problems with a father and somebody's trying to push this religion where they call God father. Does that make sense? 
if you were sexually abused as a child, those demons that are influencing the sexual abuse can attach to you. But more importantly, one of the ways that you can get a demon can get somebody to disbelieve God is by having that child or that person who reports sexual abuse to not be believed. So if you were sexually abused and you told somebody and they didn't believe you or minimized it or dismissed you, it would be easy for a demon to come and say, see, people don't believe you. They don't care what happened to you. How could a God care? Why did a God allow that to happen? You can see how quick that could progress. Here's another one. If somebody dies, somebody close to you that you love, especially a young person who was who died well, you know, too young or well below the the age of somebody who should pass away, maybe a horrible disease. The devil can make you believe that God is uncaring. And even even somebody like a Christian who comes and says, this child who died is in heaven. They didn't have to walk through all of the decisions of faith. They were innocent in their spirit. Sin nature had not taken over their lives. That child is in heaven. God accepted that child right away. Sometimes a demon can make that seem like it's not enough. Well, that's fine, but I'm hurting now. Why would God even allow a child to suffer? You've heard these conversations. Most of you have had them within yourself if you've lost somebody close to you. Here's another one that maybe isn't as subtle as it sounds. The Christian life seems boring. Um, I've been working real hard on not saying the word um, but I just said it there big time with breath and depth. Because I have to be honest with you. The Christian life can appear boring because sometimes Christians are boring. There's some sort of religious, I guess, philosophy that maybe has convinced people that when you become a Christian, you have to like give up fun or give up things that are fun. Now, let me be a little transparent with you. I am an enormous, huge Dallas Cowboys fan. Right there, some of you hate me so much just for saying that, that you'll turn this podcast off. Because when you're a Cowboys fan, you either love them or hate them. It's just one of those teams. But as a minister, as a preacher, you preach on Sundays, right? Some of the bigger churches, we had Saturday service and Sunday. And some of the churches I worked at, you were just Sunday. But depending on what time zone you're in, you're preaching while the football game is going on. And I'm a huge football fan in general, so I'll watch as many games as I can. So I can remember wrapping up sermons in my mind to try to get people gone, not only so I can watch the game, but I'm watching the people in the, in the, in the seats, checking their watches. If you know what I'm saying, it's just one of those things to where it's become like a a bone of contention because a religious person would want to say, who cares about football? You're here to learn about Jesus and you're distracted with the world and a football player isn't going to save you and you shouldn't worship, blah, 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 blah. 
You know what I'm going to tell you? Football is fun. I love watching football. I had some trouble when football got real political a couple years. And so I literally didn't watch an entire season. And I, I stand by my decision to do that. But there was a, a little gap in my Sundays, in my weekends. And, you know, it just happened to be there was pandemic. And so it was kind of a weird season anyway. But let me say this. That's something I enjoy. Do I think God cares about football? No, not in the scope of what's going on in the world. Does he care about people? Sure. Does he love when a certain player like CJ Stroud from the Houston Texans professes his faith on TV? Sure. I think, I think he blesses that Remember from a years back, Tim Tebow, kind of a similar thing where he was professing his faith and people accepted, you know, the, the outright expression of their faith. But I don't think God really cares about football, but I think he cares about me. And I think God loves to watch me have fun. I believe that God can be anywhere I am if he's watching his child find some enjoyment in the world. Now, if what I'm choosing to enjoy is contradictory to his word or his path for my life, I don't think he's happy with that. But a mundane thing like sports or going outside and hiking, whatever it is that brings you joy, do it. But somehow the Christian faith or the Christian belief system has made it to where we're supposed to be boring. Now I say that kind of tongue in cheek with a grain of salt, because there's also a side of it that people don't understand. Christianity isn't boring. Being in love with Jesus is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And my relationship with Jesus, I speak with him often all day. I have conversations with him all day, like a best friend. And maybe you think I'm weird and I don't really care, but my life is far from boring. It's full of fulfillment. The more I know God and the more I know his path for me, and the more that I listen to him and follow where he wants me to go, the boringness of my life has all but dissipated. Do you know when I felt the most unfulfilled is when I wasn't living for God? The world would have said I wasn't living a boring life, but it definitely wasn't fulfilled. I would say even in the midst of me going out and doing the things of the world, I was bored. There was no fulfillment in it. But you can see how the enemy can say, why do you want to be one of those weirdos? One of the things I love about our culture today is Christian music has actually evolved to something that's very comparable to mainstream music. I would say sometimes even better. There used to be a time when that wasn't the case. And, and I don't mean to be disrespectful or tongue in cheek about it, but there was a time where that happy, clappy Christian music used to drive me crazy. Because this was in the 80s where I was in a heavy metal band and played my guitar too loud and grew my hair too long. And to go to a church where you were clapping and singing, you know, songs that weren't compatible with my place in life, I couldn't stand it. But you can find Christian bands now that are rock, that are rap, that are 
top 40 ish type artists and there's fun music. And I think God blesses that, but the devil is lying to you. If your Christian life is boring because following Christ doesn't mean you have to follow a religion. It just means you have to follow Jesus and there'll be fulfillment there. Here's another one that I want you to consider that the devil can use. Some of you just flat out don't, don't like to be told what to do. And I'd say a lot of the people that I've encountered who've struggled with the demonic fall into this category. They don't like to be told what to do. I would say the state of the world we live in now that is that Christianity or at least church attendance is declining. It's because the world we live in, the demons who are in charge, the devil who's running the show has convinced us that having a God is foolish because you can be your own God and you can do whatever you want. You know, most people who follow Satan or the church of Satan actually believe that there is no real Satan, that it's just a way to be anti-Christian because what you should really do is live your life for yourself and do whatever it is you want to do. And if you read some of their texts or scriptures, whatever term you want to use, they're constantly telling you, to do what you want to do. They will even bastardize a scripture and say, well, you know, let's take something that God made good and just switch the words around to make it to where you don't need this godly teaching. So if you twist the words of God that says something, you know, beautiful, like, you know, do unto others as you have them would do unto you, that's the golden rule. This is Jesus having a conversation of like, what are some of the best things, some of the best commandments? And these anti-Christian or anti-God people will say, do unto others as they do to you. So if they hurt you, hurt them, exploit them because you're doing this for yourself after all. That's selfish. That's destructive. That in a civilization will bring the civilization to the ground. But the enemy can get you to believe in that statement in the blink of an eye, depending on where you are, wounded, emotional, broken down, isolated, upset with God, angry with God. That's when they move in. You lost your mom and Christianity doesn't seem to have a good answer, but I do. People die and your mom didn't live a good life. She didn't live to the fullest. So you need to live your life for the fullest. Stop going to that stupid church and start doing what you want to do. You see that voice of a demon? That doesn't sound that crazy to that person in that moment. You were abused as a child. Where was God? There can't be a God because if there's a God, what kind of sadist is he that he allowed this to happen to you? There's no God. That's ridiculous. You need to live for yourself. You need to hold this animosity towards that person. And if you ever see them, you need to attack them. But more importantly, you need to wish bad on them and you need to never forgive. That makes more sense than you need to forgive, move forward, give it to God, trust that God loves you, trust that God was there the entire time and that He carried you through that moment. And sin came into the world 
and his remedy was to send his son. And if you believe in that son, he will begin to heal you and create in you that new creation we talked about earlier. And when you get to heaven, none of this will matter. See, one of those is immediate. And one of those has like a future hope attached to it. Well, hope sometimes isn't tangible in the way that people need it to be. And the enemy will swoop in with some counterfeit remedy and move in and change your life for the worst. See, spiritual warfare is all about deception. It creates doubt and it eventually gets you to turn from God. How does deliverance ministry work? You're breaking the bonds. You're truthing the lies. You're getting the sufferer to understand that everything they believed was a master plan to destroy them. I can make this simple. Imagine that you meet somebody in your time of crisis, a tangible person, and they come to you and they say, Hey man, I understand you. I saw you sitting here on this bench. You look sad. I've been there. Why don't we go out for coffee? And you go to coffee and they make you smile. They listen intently as you tell your story. They don't judge you. They don't correct you. They just let you feel. And they tell you all of your feelings are real and valid. And they matter and that you matter. And subtly they tell you, you know, you know, those Christians say this, but it doesn't really make sense, does it? You know what I do is I do this and it makes me feel better. And I do that. And you begin to spend more and more time with that person. And you seem like you've been accepted and you're accepting. You feel like you've formed a relationship. And before you know it, you're knee deep in this relationship, almost locked in to where you don't know how it even happened, but that relationship becomes abusive, but you don't know how to get out. And imagine you find out the whole time that the person never cared about you. They never really wanted to help you. They just saw your weakness and your vulnerability, and they used your own emotions against you to weave themselves into your life, and now you don't know how to get out. Imagine how that would feel if a real person did that to you. See, I think that makes sense to you, but if I tell you that a demon does that to people, you think I'm nuts. Well, find a different solution. You know, some of the people that want to mock Christianity, somebody will come and say, I feel like there's a demon in my house. Their answers look a lot like, there's no such thing as ghosts. That's imaginary. Go get some mental help. You sure you're not crazy? Rarely do I hear any sort of empathetic response. It's a mocking sort of like you're ridiculous and somebody needs to correct you type of a response. But if that same person said, Hey, I just dated this guy. And the whole time I found out he was a snake and he had lied to me the whole time and he robbed me, beat me up. I have nothing left. Those same people will come and say, 
well, I'm here for you. They won't say, well, it's your fault, stupid, for getting involved in that person. What do you think was going to happen? That's what you get. The same people that will mock you when you say that a demon is doing that to you are the same people that might accept you if you told them a person was doing that to you. But it's an entity in and of itself with the same MO. As a matter of fact, I would say that if a person does that to you, it was the demon who was attached to that person who was inspiring them to do that to you. Does that make sense? So as you look to understand how a demon weaves its way into your life and what deliverance ministry actually is, it's a way to get you to stop believing the lies, break the bonds, break the contracts, break the things that have tied you to this demon. You cancel the contracts, you renounce the permissions, you get rid of the unforgiveness, you commit your life to Jesus, and you'll be delivered. And your life will be more fulfilled than you ever imagined because this is also simple. Why does a demon or why do a group of demons spend so much time on you? How valuable must you be? I saw a meme not that long ago that we posted on social media that said something to the effect of how beautiful a soul must be that both God and the devil are fighting for it. Man, I love that. Because if you can understand that, you'll understand why a demon is trying to get you. Because your soul is beautiful and they hate it. And why does God want you? Because your soul is beautiful and he wants it. He wants you to himself. He loves you. A demon doesn't love you. They're trying to get you to move as far away from the real love of your life, Jesus, to a demise. So what I want to do now is again ask you that question that I asked last week. If you had to guess what area of your life is vulnerable to demonic attack, and if you take last week's episode, and, excuse me, and this week's episode, you'll be able to understand what I'm talking about. You'll be able to understand that your vulnerabilities are the doors that the demons are going to knock on. And how do you feel about God? Do you really believe him? Do you really trust him? You see, religion will tell you that unless you believe and unless you understand, here's what I know. Religion, I believe, is the biggest lie in the world. It is the biggest tool of the devil. Your relationship with Jesus is intimate. That's all he wants. The God of the universe wants to spend time with you. He waits for you. I've said this in sermons. He romantically pursues you. Not Don't, don't make that gross. He's around corners. He shows up in little subtle places to get you to pay attention, to get you to be reminded of who he is. You see his beauty in the face of a child or in a sunset or in something funny that warms your spirit. He's in those moments. And he just wants you to get to know him. And most of the things that don't make sense, he'll begin to help you in your limited 
mental capacity to understand them as best as you can by providing you with knowledge and wisdom, but he'll also get you to understand that most of those things you're worried about are irrelevant, that he's in control, that he has you. Because I can say this, you show me a person who is madly in love with Jesus, who turns to Jesus with questions, curiosities, with hard questions. God, why do you allow children to die? God, why did you do this this way? And now I'm all ears. Listen to me. What God will do is he'll begin to be in a relationship with you that is so reciprocal and so loving that you will be enmeshed with him. You will be in total concert with him. So back to my question, you or back to my statement, if you show me somebody who is in that, there's no room for demons. As a matter of fact, if a demon shows up, you'll know it right away. You'll sense it, you'll feel it, you'll understand it. If I'm in love with God and he's in love with me and we're in concert and we're laughing and we're having a good time and he's blessing me and even the things I don't understand, he's comforting my heart about and a demon shows up and says, hey, that dude you're spending time with doesn't love you. You laugh in his face. Get out of here, demon. Get out of here. You hear stories of some of these, some of these Christians from the past. You know, I think Lester Summerall's the one that said he, he came he woke up in the middle of the night and there was a demon in his window and it moved his bed. And I think he said something to the effect of you got to leave, but before you do, you put my bed back in its place and the demon had to obey him in the name of Jesus. But that only happens when you understand that you're in the loving arms of the God that has defeated this little enemy that's trying to deceive you. I hope that makes sense, and I hope that kind of helps you as we move towards the end of this first season. The next episode we have will conclude, and it'll be a little more in-depth into the practicalities of what deliverance ministry looks like. But I wanted to close us out tonight in prayer. So if you don't mind, let's say a little prayer. God, there are people that are listening that maybe have no idea that there's a demon lurking around. Maybe it's embedded itself in their lives. So for those people, God, I just pray that you would go to them now, right where they are. I pray that your spirit would begin to move in that room, in that place that they are. Demon, devils, in the name of Jesus, release this person in this very moment. You have no authority there. They renounce the authorities that they've given you. They renounce the permissions. Where Jesus is, you tremble at that name. You tremble in his presence. And the name of Jesus is more powerful than any trick you have, any words that can come out of your mouth because you're a defeated foe. So in the name of Jesus, release them, release them and give them the freedom to turn to God and away from you. We turn to you, Jesus. We're sorry for our sins. We're sorry for what we've done. We're sorry for giving permissions that we shouldn't have given. And maybe we don't always understand you or understand how you work, but we trust you. We ask you to be the Lord of our lives. We ask you to be 
our comforter, our counselor, our ever-present help in time of trouble. Just be there always for us, God. Teach us, live with us, love on us, and lavish us with your grace. We're sorry that we turn to other things instead of you, but now we turn to you and we're committed to you to learn about you because the way we chose wasn't the right way. It was killing us. So thank you for freedom. Thank you for releasing the bonds. And thank you for defeating the enemy that's after me. And we just pray that you cover us constantly, that you build that hedge of protection around us. So when any devils or demons come back, that all they see is you and your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, thanks for tuning in to the Freedom from the Struggle podcast. Again, if you like this podcast, you like the content, or even if it's stirring you a little bit and you want a second opinion, ask a friend to listen. Ask several friends to listen because we're a new podcast. We're trying to grow. We're trying to reach as many people as we can. We want to build a prayer army. I've been saying over the last couple of weeks that if you're somebody who needs help or you're somebody who feels that you're under demonic attack, please reach out to us. Anthony at the struggleseries.com is the email. Anthony at the struggleseries.com. But also if you're somebody who feels you're in a good place, but you want to be a prayer warrior, um, send us an email as well. We read through all of those. The team will read through them and, and we'll pray over them. And we will um, add you to our prayer list. Um, if you are new to this podcast and you like it, please uh, push subscribe, follow, hit the bell, uh, give us a review if you feel the feel necessary. You'd like to give us some feedback. Good reviews always help us. Again, share with a friend. We do have a Patreon account. This Friday, you will hear the second bonus episode of our. I'm sorry. Yeah, this Friday will be the second bonus episode, so you can check that out on Patreon. There is a $2 level. You become a prayer warrior with us. You help us support the podcast. We'll give you a shout out on the air. And if you are a $5 level, you'll have access to that bonus content. I want to give a shout out to Pat and Judy uh, for joining us in our Patreon account, um, we, our Patreon campaign. We appreciate that very much. So thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next week, Wednesday night with our final episode of season one. Many blessings.